Romans chapter 4. Here we are, and the question is, how much faith do I have to have to be saved? There's a few different things going on in this passage, but what we're going to kind of come around to is this concept of how much faith does a person really need to be saved? What sort of faith is saving faith? Um, Because that's what the passage in general is talking about, is being saved by faith. So here we are, Romans chapter 4, verse 12. It says that, uh, speaking of Abraham, it says, And the father of the circumcision, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For of those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. And may I stop and point out, If you don't have your Bible actually open, this will be a difficult study to follow because we really are studying the passage, studying the very words used. That's why it's so important to have it, have your text, have it open, even if it's on a phone or something. So you can actually look at the words and correlate them with the things that you're hearing. But the the thing we're talking about here is um, how Abraham is, is saved by faith. And then the hypothetical is thrown out here in verses 13 and 14, right? That if he was saved by the law instead of by faith, then, verse 14, then faith is made void. Then faith is made void. What does that mean? Well, if you're saved by the law, then faith is not the issue. If it's a matter of just doing good, then what you believe isn't going to factor into it that much. It's just be obedient, do what's good. How is faith here the main factor? But if you fail in works, then faith makes sense. Um, Laws and promises are two completely different things. The law says this, hey, if you do this such and such, then this will happen to you. The promise says, hey, this will happen. Believe it. But if the law is in there, well, then the promise, it's it's invalidated by the fact that I broke the law. So the promise can fail. So then I can lose the thing that I feel is promised if it's based on law. That's, that's kind of the, the point here. It's an insecurity that comes if you have a works-based salvation. And then he goes on. He says, the promise is made of no effect. That's because, again, if works, if works can undo the promise, well, then what's the point of the promise? It's not really a promise, is it? It's more of a possibility. <laughs> like, hey, you might be saved. Just keep trying. Just keep trying. You might be saved. So if it's of the law, then what use is the promise? In fact, why was there ever even a promise given? Why is, it, why is there such an emphasis on promises, an emphasis on faith, if it was salvation itself was going to come through the law, since the law is based on obedience? Galatians 2.21 puts it this way, and Paul puts it in strong words in Galatians 2.21. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if, hypothetical, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. I remember first studying Galatians and this passage, this verse blew me away because he just straight up says it. Like, if you can be saved, if you can get righteous through your obedience, if you can be good enough, then Jesus's death is purposeless. Jesus's death is in vain or it's futile or it's pointless. All he really should have done was said, hey, be better, you know, do better. But he died because we're not better because we don't do it. So now this promise that Paul's talking about He keeps referring to the promise in Romans 4. He's just just talking about the promise, the promise. This is not just the gospel itself, but it's it's an all-encompassing phrase referring to 
everything God tells Abraham and that Abraham believes. So it has to do with um, God being his shield and his reward, about him just believing in God's person, as well as believing in the future promises for the descendants of Abraham for the land of Israel. Like all of this stuff is kind of encompassed in it. Um, now, if that means then that the land, the promised land, as we read in Genesis 15 before, that the land itself is promised to Israel, and that promise is based on promise, not on law, doesn't that mean that that promise is still valid? That even though they may be disqualified from entering into it at the moment, it's still a promise. It's going to happen, regardless of their rebellion, regardless of how many times they've backslid. And that should be encouraging to you. about God's grace towards you personally. All right, let's keep reading in verse 15. It says, Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. These are powerful verses that are generally ignored, right? People read, they just skim over these verses, and they're like, that was, that's, okay, that's interesting. Let me look for the verses that just, you know, make me feel better. (laughs) And they kind of keep reading. But in understanding this, this is a powerful thing. So this might be puzzling, but let's read it again and then let's talk about it. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. So how is it that the law brings about wrath? Well, I think there's an illustration. If you would turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. In 2 Kings 22, there's a a 3D real-life illustration of how the law, quote, brings about wrath. In, this, in the way that Paul means. And this is consistent with the book of Romans itself. It's about King Josiah and his reign. In King Josiah's time, he was a good king, but he was following up kings that were not so good, right? And they had ignored God's law. In fact, they had set it aside and it didn't even, he wasn't even aware of it. He hadn't even heard or read the law. But what happens is he has a fund given to clean up the temple and beautify the temple. And in cleaning it up, they go, ah, The book of the law was in there, Josiah, and he decides to have it read in his presence. So here we'll see what impact did the law have on a people who were basically ignoring it or unaware of it before. So 2 Kings 22, verse 10. It says, Then Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law, that he tore his clothes. He rips his clothing. It says, Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asaiah, a servant of the king, saying, so now he gives a command, right? He rips his clothes. That's an example of him saying, I am grieving. I am humbling myself. I am. This is not a happy moment. This is a terrible, sad, difficult moment. That's what the tearing of the clothes is. And here's his command. Verse 13, go inquire of the Lord for me. That's the job of the priests, right? For the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. The law brings about wrath. Now, God's wrath was already there. But what happened was he became aware of how much they fell short of the book, of the law, because it had been read in their presence. This isn't the only time this happens with Israel. In the reading of the law in Ezra and Nehemiah's time, they have to tell the people, whoa, slow down, don't mourn. I mean, they read the law to them and they're like, don't mourn. This is a day of celebration. God's restoring us. There's this this 
reading of the law in Daniel's time, where he's going through and he sees and perceives that the time of the regathering of Israel is coming, the 70 years desolations. But it hits him that it's the sin of the people of Israel that has brought on this Babylonian exile. And he has this long prayer of repentance. Why? Because the law brings out wrath. How so? It's simple. Rules expose me as a rule breaker. Many of us played Monopoly as kids, right? I mean, raise your hand if that was you. Did you play Monopoly when you were a kid? Yeah, just about all of us here, except Adam. You didn't play Monopoly. Poor guy. He missed out on life. Or maybe you played life and didn't play Monopoly. I don't know. Um, but I remember being a kid and actually reading the rules of Monopoly for the first time. And I suddenly realized, we do not do this. <laughs> like, we do not play this by the rules. What happens is you read the rules and you get exposed as a rule breaker. You're like, parking, free parking doesn't even mean what I think it means. There's no rule about going around the board once. Why are we making all these deals? This doesn't even exist in the game. Like, th these are a lot of house rules have invaded into Monopoly. Well, that's fine in the game of Monopoly. Play with it how you want. It's just a game. But when it comes to following God, house rules are not allowed. Doing it your own way is not allowed. Like, we come to God on his terms. I mean, this is not... <laughs> This is not let's make a deal. It's not subway. You don't get it your way. Like you come to God and you follow his commands. They're commands, not suggestions, right? And so they, they hear the law and it brings out their sin. In fact, you can't read the Bible without seeing your own sinfulness in its pages. And you go, oh man, oh, I do that. That's me. Oh, that's me. That's me. And so it shows us our sin. In fact, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, if you read Matthews 5, 6, and 7, he seems to be doing this to Israel. He goes out and he teaches them and he shows them the law. Some people think that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus taking the law of the Old Testament and making it like stricter and stronger. But not really. If you read the Old Testament carefully, Jesus is just explaining it how it really is. This is just how it is, man. When God says, do not covet, and then Jesus later on, he says, yeah, you, you hate your brother in your heart. You've committed murder in your heart. God does care about the heart and the thoughts of your heart. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. This isn't a new idea. It's rather he's restoring the truth of these things. So, to some who think that the law makes them righteous, what Paul is doing is he's saying, no, the law exposes you as a sinner. As a sinner. It'd be like if I handed you guys all the driving rules of California. And I said, read through this. I know all of us would be like, oh, I did that. Oh, I do that too. Oh, I do that. And the law brings about wrath because I'm, I'm a lawbreaker. That's the point. So um, turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, and it talks about how as Christians, how we should use the law in, part of, in this new covenant that we are in under Christ. How should I use this Old Testament law in my own witnessing or in my sharing of the gospel? 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 8. So those who think they're righteous in the law, they misunderstand its function. It doesn't show you your righteousness. It shows you your sin. So 1 Timothy 1.8, it says this, But we know that the law is good if, if one uses it lawfully, if you use it the way it's intended. Knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous person, right? Because the righteous person doesn't need any laws. They're already doing it all. You don't need any laws if you're perfect. But for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, 
for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. What's the purpose of the law? To convict the sinner of their sin. This is a, I got to mention this again because this isn't the passage we're in, but, but there is a, a good reason to, point, to use the law and use the word of God to point out other people's sins, not because you're trying to be self-righteous, but because you're trying to use the law lawfully and help people come to a place of repentance. You should you know, get the plank out of your eye first. You should consider yourself lest you also be tempted. You should do it with an attitude of grace, but you should do it. I mean, that's, a, that's the biblical use of the law. So that's what's meant by the law brings about wrath. The question now I have is there in, in verse 15 where it says, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Here's a potential serious problem. And here's a, here's a verse that some people would take and twist to their own destruction. Does this verse mean that Romans is teaching us that if I have no law, I'm not condemned, that I have no sin, that if I'm a Gentile who doesn't have the law, that I'm simply not condemned? Is that what it's saying? because it says, for where there is no law, there's no transgression. Well, that's not what it's saying, because we have to read it in context, right? Paul already said in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, that everyone has the law. It says this, for when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, they're a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. There's a law written in their hearts, morality. Their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So when it says um, where there's no law, there's no transgression, well, that's true. However, everyone has a law. The Jews had the Old Testament law, and then the rest of the world has the simple revelation of moral conscience, the, uh, the general revelation of God, as opposed to the special revelation in the scriptures. So we're all moral agents. Now, to be a moral agent means that you, you not only know that something is good and something is bad, but you know that you should do the good things and you shouldn't do the bad things. You have a sense of obligation. And you know that that's part of the reality. Like, I, I shouldn't do that. I should do that. There's an ought. There's an ought. And so you could say where there's no ought, there's no wrath. You know, trees don't have wrath coming upon them. A tree falls down and it lands on your neighbor's house and, you know, you're not like, you know, having wrath upon the tree exactly here. But if a drunk driver comes in and runs into the house, that's a different story because there's a moral compass that's there that they should have obeyed. So we all have that law. The law brings about wrath. Paul here, if, if we understand the, the flow of Romans, he's disqualifying from every possible conceivable angle. He's disqualifying anyone from thinking that we can be saved by works. By explaining the purpose of the law and how Abraham was saved and all this stuff. So verse uh, 16, let's continue. It says, therefore, it is of faith, our salvation, it's of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. There's a few really important things in this verse. It is a faith because faith means grace. That's the first part of the verse. It's a faith that it might be according to grace. Faith means grace. Faith and grace are, are coupled together. They're two sides of the same coin, just like works and, and law are two sides of the same coin. 
But we're saved by faith that it might be according to, according to grace. Salvation, this is interesting, salvation based on Romans theology, it's not that salvation includes faith. It's that salvation is of faith. Do you, do you think of the difference? Faith is not just one ingredient amongst a bunch of different things you need to be saved. It's of faith. You're saved of faith. That's how you're saved. Some people try to devalue faith and turn it into simply an ingredient. But then it, then it says here that faith might be according to grace. Now, this might be a little confusing to some, but, but I want to give a, a side note here to anybody, especially who might be listening, that might be of the Calvinist persuasion, who are my friends and my brothers and sisters in Christ. But here's one point where I would say, this is where I, I disagree with Calvinistic theology, and here's the reason why. I think when you really listen to Calvinistic teaching, it seems to me that they treat faith like it is a work. Like they treat faith like faith itself is a work that you do. This is why it can't be of you. You can't choose to have faith. It's got to be something God does to you because if you're choosing faith, you're doing the thing that gets you saved. But the Bible doesn't, te- doesn't treat faith like it's a work. Faith, it's of faith that it might be according to grace. So faith and grace go together. Faith itself is not a work. It's contrasted with works. It's not in the same plane of things at all. And so for that reason, um, since faith is not a work, you can say that person has free will and chose to believe in Christ. And, that, and they get, there's no boasting in this belief because it's merely belief. It's not works. But there's another thing in here too. Um, it says that it's a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure. The promise might be sure. See, if you're saved by works, you're never sure. I never know if I'm really saved. But if you're saved by grace and you're saved by faith, then you can sing, you know, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. That word assurance, I'm assured of it. Why? How do you know that you're saved? Are you sure you're good enough to be saved? No, I'm sure I'm not. But I'm sure he is because it's by faith. So that's how I know. I know I'm saved because it's by faith. Faith, because it doesn't involve works, also gives us a certainty of our salvation, a security in Christ that we have. There's assurance there. I like Philippians 1, 6 that tells us, being confident of this very thing that he, God, who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's his work that he began in me. I just believed. He's the one doing it. How do I know I'm saved? Because he's saving me. Don't you think he's good enough to save you? <laughs> Isn't he enough? Of course. And this is really the only way you can be, can be sure that you're saved. Now, I've, I've met people who they think, they sort of think that they're saved by, by faith plus works, this sort of faith plus works theology that branches out to just about every religion. Um, but I've met people who are in the Christian church, who are part of our fellowship, who they struggle in this. And they tend to waffle between two states of mind. Boasting, which Paul talked about earlier, and then insecurity, which is implied in this passage here. You see, the person who thinks that they're good enough to be saved, when they're feeling good, when they're having a good day, they go around feeling secure in their salvation. And they look around and they wonder about everybody else, but not themselves. I don't know about those people, but I know I'm for real. I'm solid because I'm living godly. And so they feel good and they're boasting in it. They're arrogant in their own salvation. But then in those quiet moments, when they start thinking and reflecting on their failures, now they're totally insecure. 
And I, as, as a pastor, I can tell you the same people that you would look around and think, man, that person's so judgmental, man, that person's so like, they obviously disapprove of everybody else in the church. Like this is just the way they operate their lives. Yet they then privately go to the pastor and they say, can you pray for me? I'm not sure that I'm saved. Because the same thing that makes them boast makes them insecure. They're looking to their own works instead of to the works of Christ. They're looking to what they do instead of to what Christ has done. And it's just something that I've, I've seen people waffle back and forth between because of, I think, a lack of a grasp of the simple, simple gospel of salvation by grace. So then there's this really big idea. And, and you guys know this um, from the scripture, but also from the song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Huh? Right hand. <laughs> yes. Um, this is this is really taught clearly in this Romans passage, right? It says, um, so it's a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. There's a different sense in which spiritually you're a descendant of Abraham because you have the same faith that Abraham had. He's the first person in scripture who we see clearly it being said he was saved by faith. He believed God and God accounted to him for righteousness. So he's got like that. He's that spiritual head in a sense, not headship like Christ, but, but an example. And so we're children of Abraham by faith. I have the, the he's, he's my father in faith. That's what he is. In a similar sense, you know, you might have a spiritual dad in your life. Here's kind of my spiritual mom, in a sense. They, they've taken this role in my life. Well, Abraham being an example for all of us. Um, now, this is not replacement theology. Um, this is not where we should say, Israel, God's done with you. Now, pretty much all of Abraham's descendants are almost all Gentiles. That's pretty much how it is. But rather, see, it's, it's not, that's replacement theology. Get rid of Israel and put the church in, in Israel's place. This is grafting theology. That's the fancy word we'll use, grafting. Grafting is some of the branches have been broken off, but us, the wild branches, we've been grafted in. So some of Israel has, re, has rebelled and lost and given out, given up um, faith and not followed that faith that Abraham had. But God still has plans for Israel and he'll still raise them back up and do those awesome things. And we're going to get into that in detail um, in chapters 9 through 11 in Romans. So I'm going to wait until we get there to talk about it more. Then in verse 17, it says, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. So why is he quoting this in verse 17? Why did Paul randomly say, As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He's trying to ground in the Old Testament his theology that Abraham is a, is a father, at least in some sense, to more than just Jews. And so he's saying, ah, he's a father of the faith that you have, that many nations have, because that gospel has gone out to all nations. That's from Genesis 17.5. That's where he's quoting. In reality, Christianity, modern Christianity, is actually far more faithful to the Old Testament than modern rabbinic Judaism. Now, some would be very offended by this. This isn't some arrogant statement of mine. The fact is that rabbinic Judaism ignores large portions of the Old Testament that have to do with sacrifices. I mean, there are no sacrifices. There is no atonement. There's works-based righteousness nowadays. And, um, and there's no temple. For you know, since, since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, they said, we've come up with a new version of Judaism. And that's what they've been sort of following, this rabbinic 
Judaism, following the teachings of the rabbi, not so much just the teachings of the word of God. Whereas as Christians, we say, no, no, we have the fulfillment of these in Christ. So we, we at least have something to do with, with the rest of the scriptures. Now, Christianity is far more Old Testament faithful than modern rabbinic Judaism. And Jews who are messianic are far more Jewish, religiously speaking, than uh, non-messianic Jews. Continuing verse 17, it says, In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, this is a preacher's detour. Like, because this isn't just, it's not just like pure theology. He's been like teaching theology stuff, but Paul kind of weaves in sort of like, I don't know, more preaching moments in the text. This is definitely one of those. He's like, you can, you can feel the lofty language and you can sense the, I don't know, the, the, the gratitude and the grandeur of this, of this statement. In the presence of him whom he believed, God. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. I like that. That's neat. Now, what's he talking about? Well, it's Abraham is the one, is is the person who's being discussed in this passage. Abraham believed God. What did he believe about God? Well, God's the one who can give life to the dead. So the direct relation is Abraham was an old man. He said that Sarah's womb was dead. His wife's womb was dead. She's, she's beyond the age of childbearing. Yet God gives life to the dead. So he's believing God for that. But also, this is connected to salvation itself. I mean, Paul had experienced this life from the dead. He knew what this was. This is why he's excited. He knew he'd been saved. He had been saved. He'd experienced the glorious saving grace of Jesus Christ. His life had been transformed. This is something that you need if you're going to minister to others. You need to know the salvation of Christ. You need to know that God gives life to the dead. Paul is passionate. Paul can bust into preaching mode because he's experienced the transforming work of Christ in his life. So he can just go into this stuff with the boldness and the courage that he does. I think it's great. It says that God calls those things which do not exist as though they did. I think the best example of this is Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before that, they didn't exist. They didn't exist. Now, it took mankind a little while to figure this out. It wasn't until the mid-1900s when they finally said, okay, all right, the universe had a beginning. Some of the modern scientists decided to say that. In fact, Einstein himself, in his general theory of relativity, he fudged the numbers a little bit because he realized that his numbers were would mean that the universe had a beginning. And he wanted to say it was past eternal. So he fudged the numbers a little bit. And it wasn't later until he got to look through uh, Hubble's uh, telescopes and look at, look at the redshift in the galaxy and all this fancy sciencey stuff that he finally said, um, it had a beginning. <laughs> like this is, and, and he later thought this was the biggest blunder of his career was when he fudged the numbers because he just thought all the philosophers, all these scientists, they thought the universe was eternally past. Just past eternal. And he realized, nope, I was wrong. It was, it was called into existence from non-existence. Suddenly, everything that we know existed. God does that. No one else can do that. No one else can do that. Nothing else can do that. Genesis 1 is really the foundation for all miracles. And it's good that Paul reminds us of this. Because we need to remember that God created all things. It gives us courage to know that God can answer the prayers of the things I'm going through now. That are infinitely smaller that are just minuscule compared to what God has already done. 
But the context here is Abraham. Abraham was told, you're going to have a son and your descendants, who, you, who will be many, they will inherit this very land. And these are there so that the statement is basically, look, Abraham realized this is the God that made all things. He's promised me things that seem unrealistic for my life. But this is the God that made all things. He's promised. God has promised. So he believes God. You're God. I believe you. I'm not going to limit you, Lord. You're not, you're not running out of money. You're not, you're not out of power. You're not out of the creativity. No. You're going to do what you're going to do. And there are many promises in the scripture that you need to remember too. The Bible tells us in Romans 8.28 that we know, not we hope, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things. We know it. That's a promise. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, says for us to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to us. And the, these things are things like shelter and food and clothing and stuff like that. And he goes, you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. I will take care of you on these other issues. Are you sure, Lord? Are you sure you're going to do that? And now you realize when faith becomes very personal, when it's not just about distant events from long ago, it's about my life and my uncertain future and God's promises applying to me. There's other promises. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is a really important verse to my heart. It says that, that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So I never have an excuse to sin because God has promised me that I don't have to. Look at this promise in John 14. Jesus says uh, in John 14 verses 1 through 3, he says to the disciples, I love this, he says, let not your heart be troubled. Now that was a powerful command for someone who within 24 hours was going to be going to the cross. And he's telling them not to let their hearts be troubled. Talk about troubling times. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And in one little phrase, we have the cure for our troubles, faith. Faith, not just faith in general, faith in his person, faith in him. Do you trust me? Believe me. Trust me. Don't let your heart be troubled. Just trust in me. Then he goes on and he says this, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That is a promise. We've got to hold on to these promises. And if we're honest, you should have more confidence in God than you probably have right now. God, who created all things, he gives life to the dead he speaks things into existence. We should be unflinchingly faith-filled at the promises of God for us. For salvation, I should be confident in the salvation that Christ has given me. But I should also be confident in the individual promises that God gives me. Sometimes the Lord does speak promises to us. I fully believe that. And if it's truly of the Lord, that's the only question I have, right? Is God, was that really you? But if it's of the Lord then I should have great confidence in it. I mean, if it's not biblical, I know it's not of the Lord. If it's carnal, I know it's not of the Lord. If, you know, there, there's, there's lots of checks and stuff like that. But we've got to hold on to the promises because typically speaking, you will be tested in faith 
when you're when you're waiting on the promises of the Lord. That's just the consistent experience of Scripture. Um, let's read on here. It says in verse 18, speaking of Abraham, and there's this really interesting phrase that Abraham, who contrary to hope, in hope believed. What does that mean? Contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. And then it quotes it, so shall your descendants be. Remember, he was looking at the stars. And he goes, your descendants will be like that, just uncountable. So how did he believe in hope contrary to hope? I I think it goes this way. I think it's that Abraham couldn't even perceive of how this promise could be fulfilled. But he believed it anyways. You know, when I look for hope, it's... I'm always going, here's an avenue for that hope to be achieved. I can see how it could happen. Like, I'm really hoping that such and such will happen. But, but, I, but I have in my mind, like, a path that life could travel that would allow this to take place. But to Abraham, it's like, what path of life? Like, it's already, we, we, we've been down the path. It ain't happening. And so, in a sense, contrary to hope, in hope, he believed. He still had hope. He still had faith. Now, some people would say, well, that's blind faith. I say, no, that, no, this is not blind faith. Because at least my understanding of blind faith, blind faith is faith for no reason. Faith for no reason might be blind faith. That's when someone says, like, I just believe that when I jump off this building, I'll fly. Why do you believe that? I don't know. I just do. Okay, that's blind faith. I don't even know why I believe what I believe. I just believe it. That, that would be blind faith. This is different. This is not blind faith. This is God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Is that blind faith? Not if God said it. (laughs) Not if God has spoken. If God, the creator of the universe, has declared something to be true, to be the case, you're a fool not to believe it. This isn't blind faith. It is true that you don't see the fulfillment of the thing yet. So there is something I don't see. I don't see the thing happening yet, but I know that God has spoken. So of course I'm going to have faith and trust in him. That's proper faith. That's faith for good reason. So it's reasonable faith. And if you really think about it, doubting God, which many of us have experienced, I'd wager maybe one or two of you in the room have doubted God once or twice. If you think about it, doubting God is one of the craziest things you've ever done in your life. To doubt God, like it's one thing to say, Lord, I'm not sure if that was you that I was really getting this from. I get that. But it's something else to be like, Lord, this is you, but I just don't know if I believe it. Are you nuts? Like, (laughs) this is such a spiritual battle that you're in at that point. How can we possibly doubt him who can just speak reality into place? Who cannot lie because it goes against his very nature. Gives life to the dead. And if this is true, that God can give life to the dead, bring out of Sarah's dead womb a living child, then shouldn't we have faith that God can take our friend who's dead in their trespasses and sins? that we're witnessing to, that we're sharing the gospel with, that he could take them and turn them back into a living person, spiritually speaking. We should have great confidence in our evangelism, in our sharing of the gospel. We should be confident in God who brings life to life, those who are dead. Um, Then in verse 19, it says this, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, (laughs) and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He said he didn't consider it. He didn't consider it. It wasn't like, Okay, God, you've given me a great promise. Now let me figure out how you're going to do it. Hmm. But he didn't do that. He couldn't see the path of its fulfillment. He just had to believe God. 
So instead of thinking, I've got it figured out, he just trusted the Lord to do it. Then verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, interesting phrase, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So he didn't waver through unbelief. I think that's a very interesting phrase. Unbelief is wavering. And that's what it makes me do. I get on the fence. I wobble in my obedience. I wobble in my confidence. I become like a wave of the sea, James chapter 1 says. He who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Unbelief is wavering. It's not rational. It's not reasonable. It's not justifiable, really. And my heart goes out to the wavering person because I've been there. It's not fun. It's not fun to be the wavering individual. But in the end, it's about choosing to trust in God. I mean, if God said it, that does settle it. I mean, how could it be any other way? This is just this is just the basics of reality. <laughs> if God speaks, there can be no there could be no argument. So then it's about choosing to trust God, right? Now, I think that what Abraham's done is he's given us an example here, and Paul's highlighting this example, of what saving faith looks like. Abraham believed and he was saved. And then the description is, it was promises about, like, earth-moving stuff. I mean, you know, the, the deadness of the womb not even being considered. And Abraham trusts in God. This is a strong faith. And then the result of it is it's a strengthening faith. He was strengthened in faith. Meaning that Abraham might have been weak, but because he believed God, he was strengthened. I think there's many believers out there who are struggling with doubt, and because of this, they're very weak believers. But if they will choose to trust God, to really, really trust the Lord in all that he says in his word, to just believe him, make that decision, they will be strengthened in faith. They'll be strengthened in so many ways in their lives, and they won't be like this wave tossed to and fro. This is probably at the heart of a lot of stumbling believers' daily lives, is simply being what Jesus said of the disciples, O you of little faith, you may be suffering a hundred different spiritual ailments because of a lack of faith. The good news is faith is a choice. And there's one encouraging story that really, really encourages me personally. When the centurion came to Jesus asking for healing, and he says, all things are possible for those who believe, and the centurion responds, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Unbelief and belief coexisting. That's not a fun place to be. But he made a decision between the two. And he said, Lord, I will believe. I believe. Help me with this unbelief. And Jesus then brought the healing, which means what? Good enough. Good enough, if that's what you'll do. If you'll come to God with that, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Let me be a work in progress, Lord, but I want to grow in faith. But I will choose to believe you with whatever I've got. I think that that's a beautiful thing. Then in verse 23, it says, um, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. Now I happen to love this because this is, there's a discipline called hermeneutics. You guys have heard of hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the art and science of Bible interpretation. That's hermeneutics, right? Homiletics is the, uh, the, the studying of how to preach and how to deliver messages. I obviously have not paid a lot of attention to homiletics. I focus mostly on hermeneutics. Um, I find homiletics weird. But hermeneutics, very interesting, is how do you interpret the Bible? How do you interpret it? Well, there's rules of hermeneutics. And some of the rules I agree with and some I don't entirely agree with. One of the rules is this. 
You cannot read the text to mean anything that it didn't mean to the original audience or that it didn't mean from the original author, something the author didn't intend. Now, I've run into that rule of hermeneutics and I thought, but God's the author. Like, are you telling me you don't think the Holy Spirit could have had something in mind beyond what the author was aware of? I mean, Daniel, in his writings, there's times where he writes stuff and he's like, I don't even know what this means. And the Lord's like, eh, just seal it up. It's not for you anyway. I mean, this is like Daniel 12, right? And just seal it up and it's for generations later. It'll, uh, don't worry about it, Daniel. That, there, that the true author is God. It's the Holy Spirit who has in mind the things for us. So let's read again. What did it say in verse 23 into the beginning of 24? It says, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him but also for us. From Paul's perspective, Genesis is 1,400 years old. And he's telling his audience of the day that what was written about Abraham was written for the Romans of Paul's day, that the author had them in mind because the author is the Holy Spirit. And the author of the Holy Spirit has us in mind as well. I should read the scripture knowing that God had me in mind when it was written. This doesn't mean that I, th- that I pretend I'm Israel, the nation, or that I pull things out of context and apply them in ways that are, are not good, you know, or, or just casually rip verses out of the Bible and throw it anywhere I want in my life. So I, I need to have good hermeneutics. But I recognize the Holy Spirit as the ultimate author, not Moses, not Isaiah, not Daniel, but the Holy Spirit. And I think that's important. So then uh, he applies it. He takes this 1,400-year-old from his perspective, right, 3,400-year-old from our perspective text, and he says at verse 24, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Guess what? Just like Abraham was given righteousness by faith, you will get righteous by faith when you believe in God who raised up Jesus from the dead. Verse 25, who was delivered up for our, because of our offenses, why he died? Because of our sins. And was raised because of our justification. His resurrection assures us of our salvation. Because he lives, we live. My confidence is in his resurrection. How do I know I will rise? Because he did rise. So I think that uh, to conclude, um, saving faith, we asked like how much faith do you have to have to to be saved? I think James chapter 2 is is a fantastic description of saving faith. James 2 is written to the casual believer, right? Who needs a, a kick in the pants. Because they're just... They, they're like, well, no, I'm good. I got my, my fire insurance, I believe. But there's no works to back up this faith, which leads us to think that the faith is actually dead in and of itself. It's a dead faith. The works don't save, but faith that does save, it works. It will work. It will. And this faith that Abraham has, it's a bold faith. It's a strong faith. It results in later obedience, as we see. Um, So faith, ultimately, though, that is not just in what God does, but catch this, it's in who God is. That's the context over and over in Romans, that it's not faith just in what God does. It's not faith that God raised Jesus. It says it's faith in him who raised Jesus. So my faith is in the person of God. I believe you, God. I trust in you. I'm confident of you, not just these facts, but you. You're the one I trust. That's a different kind of faith. And that's a courage. There's a confidence and there's a comfort that comes from believing not just, not only what God says, but believing who God is. Believing in his character and his goodness and his power and in the things he's done in the past. Um, So hopefully you guys will be strengthened in faith.
Hopefully I'll be strengthened in faith. It's the one commodity as a believer that we cannot live without. You've got to trust. You've got to just choose to trust. It's a decision you make. And the more you decide it, the, the stronger it is. Um, uh, now, next week, we're going to dig into Romans chapter 5. And Romans 5 is going to go deep in asking us to take this saving faith and apply it into our daily struggles in life. I love Romans 5. I, I seem to gravitate towards Romans 5 as I'm teaching about trials. Whenever I'm teaching on trials, I end up, end up in Romans 5, I think. It's going to take the same faith that saves you and ask you to apply it into your daily struggles and your daily trials. And it is golden and it is beautiful. It's wonderful. I encourage you to read it ahead of time and give it some thought and prayer. Um, so let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your holy word tonight. We thank you, God, that you've revealed to us how we can be saved, but also an example of faith that we should follow. To think upon your promises and to not waver in unbelief, to not think about how they can be accomplished, to not worry about the details of how things can happen from our own limited human perspective, from our lack of creativity, and from our fearful thoughts about the future, but to instead just to trust you, God, because you are you, you are good, you are true, it is the sanest thing to believe you and the craziest thing to doubt you. We want to be strengthened in faith, Lord. And so we pray that we would glorify Christ, that we be solid believers with real faith in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You are